I would draw your attention back to Ephesians this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. And we will read God's holy and inspired word from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, We come before You this morning, Lord, with praise and adoration. For praise for Your grace and Your mercy, Your love, Your salvation that You've bestowed upon us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word which reveals this to us. We thank You, Lord, for the immeasurable riches of Your grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we that who have been at enmity with You, who rebelled against You, might be brought close as sons and daughters, that we might be the children of God, through Christ. Lord, give us hearts overflowing with praise. Give us lips that speak constantly of Your great work and Your great mercy and Your great grace. Lord, accept our worship here this morning and feed us. In Your name we pray. Amen. Parents, how many times have your kids, or maybe there's some of you who no longer have kids in the house, uh, maybe grandkids, how many times do you remember the kids asking why? How many times? Aaron, you've got young kids at home. How many times do they ask you why? Absolutely. Everything you teach, everything that happens, well, why? Why did this happen? Why do we do that? Why this? Why that? I've trained several people, adults, in my work, and it's the same thing. You tell them something, well, why? 
Why is it important that we do that? Why do we do this? What do we do this for? The reason and the purpose for things is so important to us, is it not? If there is no reason for doing things, there is no weight to them. There's no meaning, there's no urgency, there's no point if there's no purpose. Think about having to endure a hardship. Hardship and struggle, struggle, trials and difficulties. Those things will overcome someone if there's no purpose for what they are having to endure. I, I'll never forget um, listening to a study by R.C. Sproul on suffering. And it was entitled, Surprised by Suffering. He was speaking to physicians and hospital staff who deal with death and suffering. And I believe most of it was uh, in and around cancer. It's been a while since I've listened to this. Maybe MD Anderson Hospital. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it have been in Texas, maybe, or, or somewhere down south. Uh, but teaching this. Uh, there's another very, very similar series that was also by Ligonier, and it was taught by Elizabeth Elliot. And some of you may remember that name. And her series, her, her teaching on this was called Suffering is Not for Nothing. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot was the widowed wife of Jim Elliot. And Jim Elliot was killed along with four other missionaries by the Aka or Alka natives in Ecuador in 1956 while trying to reach this hostile group with the gospel. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of redemption and God's grace. Elizabeth Elliot and one of the sisters of the, the other men ended up a short time after uh, these murders of these missionaries going in and living with this group and sharing the gospel with them. And the story of this you can read about in, in several different works, but one of which was written by Elizabeth Elliot called Through the Gates of Splendor. But in both of these, this question comes up. And Sproul, I believe, even says that when pain enters and hardship enters, the first question we hear is the question that every theologian dreads to hear. Why? Why? Much the same as you, a parent, may dread to hear for the 10,000th time from your child. Why? Everywhere, everyone, without exception, is looking for purpose in this life. They may not admit it. They may hate the searching. And they may suppress it. So much that they, they bury it down deep so they don't have to deal with it. It doesn't drive them mad. But the simple fact is, purpose, the answer to why, is vital to our lives. It's an important question, the one that the Christian is uniquely qualified to answer. This morning, we will talk about one of the whys. We will deal with the purpose. Did you find yourself asking this question as we've been going through the study in Ephesians? 
as we've been preaching and teaching from Ephesians, as we've journeyed through the first chapter and made our way into chapter 2, has this been a question that's in your back of your mind? Why did God do all this? Why has God done all these things that we've been reading about? It's great to hear about what He's done, but why? Why? I'm sure you all have your Bibles open still to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, so you may not even have to turn the page. But I want you to scan with me through this text. As, as Paul lays out for us the plan and actions of the triune God. The three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul records for us these actions of God from eternity past. We've looked at this. From eternity past, through the time, through time, to the point to which he is writing, and even on to the time that we live in now, and to the time that is yet to come. As he moves through this plan of redemption until it comes to its consummation in its fullest sense. Why? Look with me. Why has He blessed us in Christ? Is that where He starts in verse 3 of chapter 1? That He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing? Why every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? Why did He choose a people before the foundation of the world? Why? did He predestine us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ? Why has He blessed us in the Beloved? For what reason or why do we find that He has given us redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ? Why forgiveness of sin? Why are these amazing, undeserved, miraculous gifts lavished upon us? Isn't that what He tells us He's done? He's lavished this upon us. Poured upon us in such an overwhelming manner. Why is He showing to us, in verse 9, the mystery of His will? showing us a glimpse of His eternal purpose which He set forth in Jesus Christ. Why have we been given an inheritance? Predestined to be the recipients of such a blessing now and even more so in the future? And why has He sealed that for us? By the promised Holy Spirit, who is the, what does He say, the guarantee that we will one day be recipients of all of this in the fullest sense. Why is He choosing to pour out His Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him? Why would He give unto us a hope? A hope that is grounded in faith, of what is guaranteed to us through the Spirit. This is not some baseless hope. 
This is not some wishing at a wishing well. This is a hope that is grounded in what he has done. Why? Why? Why work the immeasurable greatness of his power, this resurrection power that we find towards the end of chapter 1, this resurrection power, why has he worked that greatness, this greatness of his power in us? Why has he united us to Christ as the head and we as the body? Why, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, did all this take place? Why, when we once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, why would he do this for one such as this? Why would he do this when we all once lived in sinful passions? When we were by nature children of wrath, like every other member of the human race. Why show love and mercy to us? Why, when we were dead, as we read in chapter 2, did he make us alive in Christ? Why place us in such a position that even now our, our representative is seated on the throne in heavenly places, ever living to make intercession for us? Why? Isn't that the question that comes to our minds as we ponder these things, as we think about these things, as we read these things? Why in the world did God choose to do these things? Why has he intervened in the madness and the chaos of this lost and dying world? Not only a lost and dying world, but a world that is at enmity to him. A world that has rebelled against him after the fall. So where is the answer to this grand question of why? Look at our text, and in particular, the first two words of verse 7. So that. This phrase, this, this word that, is an important word here. He has done all these things in order that. Or for the reason of. Or to the intent that, or as Lloyd-Jones put it, with the objective in view. That's the meaning that's contained in these two little words, so that. He is about to give us the answer to this great, and in reality, one of the most important questions we could ever have is why. Well, here it is. Do you see it in our text? So that in the coming ages he might show. He is going through all these things to show us something. He's going to put something on display for us. It's like he's going to, going to hold up a giant sign or he's going to place on a giant billboard for us. This is 
Why? This is why. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. There are some who believe that this is strictly something that's going to take place at the, at the very end of all things, at the, at the resurrection. But I don't find any evidence for that in the context of this scripture. I don't see this as necessarily being wrong, but I think it's a part of the whole. It's not the whole itself. God is doing, He is performing these things in the past, now in the present, as well as in the future, so that from this time on, He might display and show before both heaven and earth. And for all future time, for eternity, He will exhibit what He intends to display in this world and in the one to come. And what is it He's going to show us? What is the purpose? What is the answer to why that in coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus? His grace is to be displayed. Here is the purpose. The glory of God being manifest in His grace, which He has lavished upon us. Titus 3, 4-7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul tells us here that the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. He has something to show us. It is on display through what? Through all these things that we have been dealing with already in Ephesians. This is what he's putting on display for us. And in Titus 3, Paul takes uh, several verses here in Ephesians to state this, but in Titus 3, he kind of shorthands it, and he says it like this, He saved us according to His mercy. He regenerated us. He, he, he made us alive. He renewed us by the Holy Spirit, once again richly pouring this upon us through Jesus Christ by His grace, making us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the shorthand version of everything we've already dealt with in Ephesians. Do you see this? Do you see the purpose in your salvation? And in all aspects of your salvation. Salvation as a whole and all those things that we kind of sub, subdivide salvation as a general term into. In election, 
in calling, in regenerating, in faith, in sanctification, and in glorification, in every aspect of salvation. We, as Christians, are the living testimony. We are the animated, the moving, the breathing display of the glory of God in the immeasurable riches of His grace. We display that through what He has done in us. Look back to Ephesians 1, verse 7. Ephesians 1, 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Verse 12 says that He has done this work. Verse 12 of Ephesians 1. He has done this work so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? So that. Do you, do you see that there? Another so that? So that in order that or in order that or for the purpose of, of this, we might be to the praise of His glory. The glory of God is the purpose in all of this. Ephesians 2, 4-5 that we dealt with a few weeks ago. But God who is rich in mercy. Oh, He's rich in it. He's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. He interjects here, by grace you have been saved. So that His glory might be put on display in the giving of this grace by which we are saved. Here is the crux of the matter. Here's where the, the rubber meets the road, if you will. Here is where human pride is absolutely expelled from the equation. And we'll, Lord willing, look at this more in the future. We're unfortunately not going to get to it today. But we'll look at it in the future, Lord willing. This is not something that man wants to hear. It's not. This is not something that the professing church, unfortunately, today is proclaiming. And it's to their shame that they're not. Turn on the TV sometime. Tune into a radio station, a Christian radio station, and listen to the preaching that's going on. What do you hear? You hear, you deserve God's love. You hear, salvation is all about you. That's what you hear. And isn't this the natural response to things? We want, we want to make it all about us. That's what we do as human beings. It's all about me. In my natural state, that's the way I am. It's all about me. Everything centers around me. And so we find that this has crept even into preaching and teaching in the professing church today. And nothing can be farther from the truth. Yes, God loves His people. Amen. God loves His people. He, sent, he loves His people so much that He sent His Son to die on a Roman cross, a torturous death, because He loved those whom He chose to be His children. 
That's true. Yes, salvation is given to us and applied to us. But that's not the whole of it. That's this much of it. You, Christian, are not the chief end of salvation. You're not. You are not the ultimate purpose of all that we discussed here in our previous dealing with Ephesians. Or what we started today when we went back through this long list of whys. You are not the ultimate purpose in that. You are part of these things. And praise be to God that we are. That we are part of these things that were accomplished on your behalf and in you through Christ Jesus. But the answer to this why is this. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So that God's glory may be magnified in all times from now until eternity. His rich grace, His goodness and mercy on display from now until evermore. So that He may show, He might put on display, so that His glory shown through His mercy and grace might be heralded forever. Salvation is not so much about you, but about the glory of God and the glory of His grace and mercy being worked in and on display through and in you. The purpose of salvation is the glory of God Almighty. One of my favorite passages, I know we, we looked at, we've looked at this several times, but turn with me to Revelation. I want you to see something again. In Revelation 5, turn to Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. That's Christ. Each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language, the people and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, John said, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Notice here that the attention is not on the recipients of grace, but on the giver of grace. Like a great work of art in a museum, our thoughts are not so much on the subject that is in the work of art, but on the artist, the one who creates this masterpiece. And this is what I think he's going to get to, and we're going to eventually get to it partially in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship. For we are his workmanship. He is this great artist who has taken dirt and made it into a display of his glory. That's power. That's grace. That's mercy. That's His glory. So our thoughts are on the one who creates this masterpiece with brilliant colors and and, and skilled strokes of His brush. The one who purposed this work and who created it and who has started the work and who has finished the work for the purpose of displaying His great artistic skill. This is what we see in this scene, in this vision that John has in Revelation. All glory and all honor and attention is given to the One who did these things, who purchased and bestowed these amazing things in mercy and grace, but it's not on the recipients. I want to address something here and I want to tread very carefully with my words. There is a question that has been around for almost as long as mankind. It's the question regarding why God would allow the fall. Why would God allow the fall? This is another why question. Why would He allow the fall that we have recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3? I'm not going to pretend that this is not a complicated thing, not a complicated subject. I think it's one that's full of danger and it's full of misconception by the vast majority of the professing church today. And I hope to be careful and cautious in the things that I'm about to, to say because I never want to imply and I do not believe and I strongly oppose any notion or idea that God is in any way the author of sin. So I want to state that unequivocally right now, that, that I, I strongly oppose that notion. The Bible as a whole rejects that notion, and the concept and the clear teaching of Scripture leaves no room for it. So with that in mind, let me say that although God did not cause the sin that caused the fall, nevertheless He in some way ordained and allowed it, to take place. That's difficult. But it brings up the question of why. Why did God allow 
this great fall that cast all of mankind into spiritual death through Adam. Why? I think our text here this morning answers that question. Do you see that? So that, our text says, for the purpose of showing the immeasurable riches of His grace. Let me ask you something this morning. If the fall had never happened, if Eve had never taken of the fruit and given it to her husband, and he took and ate of it, if this had never happened, what would you know about God's grace? What would you know? What would you know about God's mercy? Would you this morning, if the fall had never happened, would you know the full counsel of God? Would you know all of God's attributes? This is an important question. It's a hard question. It's a difficult one. I'm sure that we would know about eternal power. Romans 1 makes that clear, right? That this attribute, this, this, that we use a, a theological term for it of omnipotence, this attribute of, of God's power, His eternal power, Paul tells us in Romans 1 that it's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the beginning, God. And then he created. He said, and it was. No question about God's power. We may know something of his eternality, his, his eternal being, and his, maybe even his omnipresence had the fall not occurred. We may even know something of his love to an extent as he created such a paradise and he placed man in it. Everything was good that he made. We read that in Scripture. The only mention of something not good in the paradise of God was when Moses recounts for us the more detailed account of the creation of man in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, where we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then the Lord placed this man, Adam, in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God gave to Adam every single tree that bears fruit to be eaten of except for one. Providing in love to Adam everything that he needed. And then he saw that it was not good that man should be alone. And God in great love took Adam, made him go to sleep, took a rib from him, and formed from his rib a woman, Eve. The perfect companion for him. God did this in love. We would know something of love had the fall not occurred. occurred. So then, we have some very powerful attributes of God that we would know about. But we wouldn't have knowledge of them all. 
What about mercy? Remember how in the last message that we had a couple weeks ago now, we described how Kent Hughes defined mercy. Mercy, he said, is not simply feeling compassion. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress. When something is done to alleviate distress. So then, if there's no fall, there's no distress. And the mercy that we find in the Bible, and the Bible declares to us that this mercy that God delights in. And in our text from Ephesians, we've learned that He is rich in mercy. If there is no fall, there is no disease to which a cure must be applied. If there is no fall, there is no death by sin for the remedy of redemption to be applied as the answer of a merciful God. A God who delights in not giving to people what they, by right and by justice, deserve. That's mercy. A mercy that is purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who bore for us as our substitute what justice demanded from us. The spotless Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world so that we might have mercy instead of justice. That's something to display. And grace... In our text, spoken of as the immeasurable riches of His grace, this bottomless reservoir, this storehouse of God's grace in giving us everything that we don't deserve. Look at what we were described as again. And I don't think it's going to ever be repeated enough. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in, what you want, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, chil- by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We didn't deserve to be made alive. Yet God, to show, this is the why, but God, to show in the ages to come the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus has done just that. He has made us alive and saved us by His grace. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't steal it. Couldn't even see the need for it in our death, in our spiritual death. Yet, By the immeasurable riches of His grace, 
He made lost and dead sinners alive. And not only did He make them alive, He blessed them with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, our Savior who sits on the throne, and He even now is lavishing His grace upon us as He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He chose each and every one. He made all of those who are His children. He redeemed them. He purchased them with the blood of Jesus Christ that they might be the exhibits of His glory. That they might point to His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the honor of His glory. Remember when we started and what we started with. Why? What is the purpose? What is the reason? If you recall when we started, I spoke of a lady named Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim, who was killed by the Alka or Aka Indians or natives there in Ecuador. Let me, by way of illustration, draw this to a close, and I hope that this will tie things together for you. Not many people would view what happened to Jim Elliot as a display of God's glory. This is a difficult thing to understand. And the same question of why is prominent in this case as well. Much like the fall, when we ask why would God allow the fall. We can ask this same question here. Why would God allow this to happen to Jim Elliot and these four other missionaries in Ecuador? I mean, think about this. Here is a man who loved the Lord. Here is a man who had a burden on his heart to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a group of people who are lost and dying pagan sinners. Wanting to bring the gospel of salvation to a bunch of savages. And I don't use that term lightly. This group of people were savage. They were savages. This is one of the, the names, this Alcas, by which they were known. I, I can't hardly pronounce the others. There are several other names that they were known by. Wayodani is one of them. But the reason I use the term Alka is that was the name given to them by others because it means savage. This was a warring group of people, warring within, warring without, I forget what the life expectancy was of this group and how many males were killing each other. Astronomical, the number. Slayings and revenge slayings were the norm. They were fierce, brutal savages. So why would God allow a man and four of his friends to die at the hands of these men who killed them with spears. 
Why? While they were trying to bring them the gospel. That's the question, right? Why? Well, it happens that we know the rest of the story within this, in this case. And oftentimes, we don't know the rest of the story. So we're left with an unanswered why. But this, just like our text this morning, gives us an answer to the why, and it's the same answer. When Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, Rachel was the sister of the pilot, Nate Saint, uh, found a way after the, the murders of their, their loved ones and their friends, they found a way to go into these people and live among them. And these people were brought to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but there's a deeper why to all of this. Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate. Nate was the pilot. Uh, Rachel was his sister that went in with Elizabeth Elliot. But Steve Saint, the son of Nate, was able to go in and live among these people as well. And he met a man by the name of Minke. And he became very close with this man. He was of this tribe. And they almost developed a father and son type relationship. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with this story. If you are, I apologize, but just bear with me. After they had become so close, this individual, this Minke, confessed to Steve, Saint, that he was actually one of the men who had taken part in the killing of his father. He was one of those brutal savages with a spear, killing the five missionaries. Although that man was a murdering savage, God saved him by grace. Why? Why? Saved him by grace so that he might be a living testimony to all who met him, to all who hear about, not about his goodness, not about what even a change had been wrought in his life, but about the cause of that change. that he might be a conduit, that he might be a display, a testimony of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can you see the purpose here? You see the reason for the why? In all of this, The glory of God on display in the immeasurable riches of His grace. Is this our purpose? There's a lot of people floundering around in this life 
with no sense of direction and no purpose. I know a young lady who's probably the closest thing I've ever seen and probably the closest a person could actually become to being an actual atheist. I don't believe there's any such thing, truly such a thing as, as, as an atheist because I believe at that point you are your own God if you can believe in atheism. But this young lady, she cares for nothing. Nothing is right or wrong. She has no true concept of love, not even a very small version or facsimile of love that the world has to offer. She has absolutely no purpose in her life. No purpose in her days. There's really nothing left when you talk to her. There's really nothing left in her mind but to exist until she no longer exists. In her mind, that's what's happening. What a dreadful state. What an impoverished death she is living. No hope and without God in the world. Of course there's no purpose there. There is no true purpose outside the glory of God. This is man's chief end, is it not? I wish we would go back to using catechisms with kids. So that from the very beginning, the very first question in most of the catechisms was what? What is man's chief end? What is his why? What's his purpose? And what was the answer in the catechisms to that? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that even a young child may not understand it in his heart, but at least from the time they're a child, they understand that there is a purpose in life. To glorify God. To those who are there in their sand, never, they'll never find purpose that matters until they fall on their face before the cross of Jesus Christ and look up to Him and live. They'll never find purpose. To see Him dying there for you, all these things that we read about in Scripture, all these things in Ephesians 1, redemption through His blood, dying for you, being raised from the dead for you. Ascending to the throne for you. Living evermore. We were listening to a sermon just the other day talking about how He is the firstborn of the dead. Because He's preeminent in that. Our resurrection comes because of His resurrection. He is the first because death could not hold Him. Sin had no grip over Him. He is the first to ever rise and never die again. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And He lavishes His grace upon us.
This is purpose. This is the why God did all these things so that we might glorify Him. He is jealous for His glory. He will not share it with another. Those elders fell down and worshipped Him. The glory of God is our purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for all these gifts that You have so freely bestowed upon us that we read about in Your Word. Lord, where would we be without salvation? Lost, dead, in sin, alienated from You, creatures of wrath, on our way to eternal destruction. But God, You are rich in mercy. You have an immeasurable richness of grace. Lord, help us to glorify You, to bring glory to Your name, to praise and honor You. And and Lord, help us be a light to the world of that glory that we should not draw attention to ourselves, but that we should draw attention to You and Your grace and Your mercy and Your love, Your provision for us. That they might just mirror Your glory in the great work that You have done. Lord, we thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen.